The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Hoping against hope because I know how hard my heart is. You know how hard our human hearts are, generally speaking. For us to change and for us to grow would be a miraculous thing. And so I lift that up to you and say, God, will you do the miraculous in our lives? Will you take your word and will you change us? And when I place it at your feet, Lord, when we place it at your feet, we can hope. You're a God who is committed to changing the human heart, to making us people like your son. Would you do that again a little bit today? Take your word and change us, I pray, Lord. Would you be honored here? Would you be honored by what happens after this morning because of this morning? Would you bless us with your presence, with growing Christ-likeness in our heart, with an attitude that's conformed to yours? It's my prayer, Lord. Come. Commission your spirit to move in our minds and hearts now to take the word and open it to us. Make us different people because of it. We pray in hope. And in Christ's name, amen. Some months ago, when we began in the book of Acts, we looked at chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, speaking his, to his disciples, tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, stage 1, Judea and Samaria, stage 2, to the ends of the earth, stage 3. He's describing their concentric circles of spirit-driven witness. You're going to go out and you're going to make me an issue everywhere, beginning here and then spreading out. Up to this point in Acts, we've only seen that first stage, Jerusalem, stage one. The first seven chapters of Acts are all in Jerusalem. They're all before the Sanhedrin. They're in the temple. They're discussing the Messiah and the prophets and Moses and how they killed the one who was to come. It's all very Jewish. Last week, though, with Stephen's speech, we began to turn the corner towards stage two. And it's not that, that nothing ever happens in Jerusalem after this point. It's, it's that it expands to reach out and encompass more, showing that the church, Christians, the gospel, are not tied to, dependent on anything that happens in the city of Jerusalem. It's a worldwide movement of God. That's what Stephen's arguing there. Stephen argues in chapter 7 that in Christ, the temple and the law are fulfilled. When a person trusts Christ, that person can have intimacy with God anywhere on the planet. Christ is the temple. and He goes everywhere Christians go. And he is everywhere. And in Christ, when a person trusts Christ... The law and its requirements are actually fulfilled in that person's life. Not because I was able to be obedient enough to fill all the commandments, but because Christ fulfilled all the commandments, and I trust him, and he passes his righteousness on to me. He's the one who fulfills the law. He's the one the law was pointing to. A lot of theology in that. We touched on that just a little bit last week. 
But for our purposes this morning, what we see there is that Stephen's argument, freeing the Christian church from a particular locale, from a city, his argument, and then his brutal death that followed that, form the bridge across which we pass to move to stage two, Judea and Samaria, where we turn this morning. So let me read today's passage. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. Acts 8, 1 to 25. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verses 1 to 3 here introduce several important strands of information. We, we meet Saul, who first appeared last week at the end of the, in the story of the execution, and we're going to hear a lot about him in weeks to come, so we won't say much about him now here. 
But Saul is a man who now begins to take up and actually to drive a fierce persecution against the church. It says that he was ravaging the church, a word that describes how a wild animal would tear apart its prey. This is not a pretty thing. This is a severe persecution. Previously, the the Jewish authorities had been mostly reactive. When things had happened in the temple or big events had happened, then they would respond to that and haul some people in, interrogate them, and try to intimidate them. But now Saul is switching to the offensive. He's being proactive, and he's being very thorough. He's going house to house, and he's rounding up everybody that he can find, not even excluding the women, throwing people in prison. This is a serious persecution that results, and therefore many Christians flee Jerusalem. The end of verse 1 says, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There's stage 2. It arrives. The apostles, it says, stayed there in Jerusalem. And if you look at the larger picture... We also realize that there were a lot of other Christians that stayed in Jerusalem too. But it says all of them were scattered because it's trying to emphasize a wide dispersion of a lot of Christians. Dispersed, as in diaspora. Some men know that word. It's a a word that's used here in this passage twice, a little bit later in the book of Acts. The diaspora is the scattering of the Jews around the world. And here's another incident where the New Testament maps the new community's experience onto the old community's experience. The Jews scattered. Here's the new community scattered, dispersed to the nations. They go out preaching the word. Philip goes to Samaria, which is significant because Samaria is not Jerusalem. For 900 years, Jerusalem and Judah in the south has been in a state of animosity and sometimes open war with the north, Samaria. Just after the reign of King Solomon, the northern ten tribes of Israel, so that's within the national borders of Israel, think of Israel as like a rectangle, the northern half of it, the ten tribes in the north, rejected the line of David and split off and formed their own country. And since that time, 900 years before this point, They'd been at war with one another, sometimes even physically, actually at war. There's a long history of animosity here. But Philip went there anyway. And he proclaims to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what he said when they heard him and when they saw the signs that he was performing. This is, this is remarkable here. All the things that Philip's doing here, it says he's healing lame people, they're They're coming, spirits are being cast out. There's much joy in the city. This is just like what Jesus did, just like what the apostles did in the streets of Jerusalem. The point here is that the same stuff that happened in the ministry of Jesus, the same stuff that happened in the ministry of the apostles to Jews in Jerusalem, is now happening to non-Jews, not in Jerusalem, at the hands of somebody who's not an apostle. Same sort of stuff is spreading out here into stage two. It's an interesting thing. But notice that they weren't just impressed, the Samaritans weren't just impressed by the signs, they were impressed by the message, what they heard. God draws them with signs. The signs point to something, point to a message. They hear it, they pay attention to it, and they respond to it. This is a remarkable victory for the gospel in Samaria. Actually, there's a man named Simon, it goes on to say, who had been a magician for a number of years. Now, this is not a magician 
like a guy pulling bunnies out of a hat, sleight of hand magician. And he's not just a miracle worker. Like a prophet might work miracles in, in allegiance with the God of the Bible. And saying that he's a magician, it's trying to communicate more like a sorcerer. Might be a word that connects to us. This man has real supernatural power, but it's not good. It's bad supernatural power. And for a long time, the, ver the verses say twice there that the people had paid attention to him, had paid attention to him because he had amazed them with his power. They ascribed to him greatness, saying that even he was the power of God. They had a lot of respect for him, a lot of fear for him. But the gospel moves in, draws them away, and they pay attention to the gospel and believe. Simon himself even believed and was baptized, it says. Now, there's a little hint there about what Simon's heart is like. Simon is baptized and sticks very close to Philip, paying attention to the miracles and is amazed by them. A little hint. So what's going on inside of him? We're going to see where it goes in a few verses here. In the meantime, though, the apostles in Jerusalem hear that something amazing has happened. And this is amazing. Samaria has received the word. How can that be? Samaria has received the word? Peter, John, go down there and check this out. And so they run down to Samaria to check out this rumor about how the Samaritans have embraced the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Messiah. Really? Are you, are you sure? And they come and they see it and they pray for them and they lay their hands on them and the Spirit is poured out on them which causes some of us to be a little puzzled. Because I thought that if a person actually is a Christian, that they had the Spirit, right? But here's people who are Christians who don't have the Spirit yet. How, what's going on here? How can that be? This actually caused a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion in church history, looking at these verses, trying to figure out what's going on here. And it's led to a number of thoughts, everything from the fact that some people claim that this verse is teaching that church officers have an incredible amount of authority. They have the ability to give the Spirit. They must confirm all salvations. They have the ability to give the Spirit. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is that all Christians, in fact, should hope for and wait for a second baptism of the Spirit that would come to believers later after their experience of conversion at some point. Everything in between has been theorized. But the key to understanding the passage is to see it in its context to understand where this thing falls in the flow of the book of Acts. This is stage two. It's the second part of what Jesus said the mission was going to be. What's going on here is that the apostles, God's taking particular care to show the apostles, and therefore the whole church, that these Samaritans, they're in just as much as you are. The very same things that I did in Jerusalem with you guys, I now do here in Samaria with them, and I'm going to bring it, I'm going to bring you over here and do it with your hands so that you won't ever forget it. Won't ever be able to deny it. The same message, the same experience of the outpouring of the Spirit, through your hands, Peter. The same thing, the same spirit mark happens in stage three. We'll see this later, where Peter is drawn to the Gentiles to pour out the Spirit so that Peter can't ever forget it and can't ever argue it. 
God's trying to make a point here. They're in just as much as you are. I give them the Spirit, the promised Spirit, just like I gave to you. And I'm doing it through your hands, Peter. So there isn't any delay now because we're not at the same point in salvation history. God doesn't need to make that same point again. We see him making this point throughout the book of Acts. The point's been made. We're beyond it now. If you want to talk more about that later, we can. But we need to move on and say that these folks actually are Christians. They receive the Spirit at the apostles' hands in prayer. But there is somebody here who's not a Christian. Simon. That becomes clear by what he says to Peter after the laying out of the hands and the giving of the Spirit. Simon believed, it says, but remember, the Bible is very clear that there is a difference between belief and belief. We saw this repeatedly in the book of John. There's a difference between giving mental assent, mental agreement to, saying, yes, that's true, I embrace it, and actually rolling your heart onto it and trusting it and being saved. There is a great difference. We saw this repeatedly in John. We see it again here. He believed, but what does Peter say to him? Peter says to him, Simon, you agree with the message, you believed, you were baptized, but you're still going to perish. Verse 20. Literally, he says, may your silver be with you in perdition. That's really close to saying, when you go to hell, may your money go with you. Really close to that. He's being blunt with Simon here. You tried to buy the gift of God. You have no share in this, no part in it, no piece of what we're talking about here. Verse 21, your heart is not right before God. The intent of your heart is still wickedness. Verse 23, you're still in bondage to sin. In several different ways, he tells him what his state is before God. You need to repent, and perhaps God may have mercy on you. Peter's very clear with him. Your actions have now revealed the true condition of your heart, what's actually going on beneath the surface in you. And what you need to do is turn to God that he might have mercy on you. Repent, pray to him. And unfortunately, Simon doesn't do that. He just asked Peter to pray for him that what Peter threatened him with wouldn't happen. I don't want the consequences of that to, ca- to happen to me. Would you intercede for me, please? He doesn't repent. Now, we don't know exactly what happened after this. There's a lot of writing about Simon following these years. It's hard to determine what's true, but none of it's good. Some things in church history say that Simon became a resolute opponent of Peter himself. Chased him all over the Mediterranean, opposing him. Hard to know what's true, but there's no good verdict on him after this. This, verse just, this passage just ends by saying that the apostles then went back to Jerusalem, but what did they do on the way? They stopped in the Samaritan villages and preached. The Samaritan mission field had been opened up. That's the passage for today. That's, that's what he's talking about, the Samaritan mission field being opened up. My hope is that as you hear this and consider this, that God would show you something about your place in his worldwide mission. 
God has an agenda. God's about something, about taking the gospel out, about pressing it beyond the borders where it already is to every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And he has something for you in that. And in particular this morning, here's the main point I think this morning, we must proclaim the word in Samaria. We must proclaim the word in Samaria because God is determined to save even Samaritans. Amazingly, even Samaritans. We have to go to Samaria, stay in Samaria, live to proclaim the word to Samaria because God intends to save them. We can't pass them over or skip them because we don't like them or because it's hard. We have to go to, preach in, stay in Samaria because God's about saving Samaritans. It's the main point. I'm going to make two observations by splitting that in half and describing each of those two parts. I'm going to start with the back end about how God is determined to save even Samaritans. My first observation. Let me explain that. God is determined to save even Samaritans. And the reason I need to explain is that a lot of people are going to say, there aren't any Samaritans today. What are you talking about? Samaria doesn't exist. Samaritans don't exist. This is nice in this passage, I guess, but there aren't Samaritans today. Or are there? Somebody helped me think this through once, and I want to invite you to think it through here this morning. And to do that, maybe put yourself in the shoes of one of these first century Jewish Christians. You've been in Jerusalem, you've been converted to faith in the Messiah. That's where you live, that's your heritage. What is it that makes the Samaritans what they are? Think about that. They are essentially a parallel people, a parallel culture with a parallel religion. They live within the borders of your nation. Israel's the rectangle. They live right in the middle. Samaria is in Israel. Right next door. You could walk there if you wanted to, but you don't. But you could if you wanted to. They're right there. And actually, as you look at them, they look kind of similar to you. Now, over the centuries, there's been enough intermarriage that they don't look exactly identical, but they look similar because they come from the same bloodline. They're descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just like you are. And they profess to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of Moses, the God who gave the law at Sinai, the God who prescribed sacrifice and temple, tabernacle and then temple. They're right there with you at the start, but here's where the paths diverge. They reject the prophecies that say God has established the line of David in Judah. And so they split off, form their own geographic country, within the borders of your country, form their own religious system, build their own temple around which that religious system revolves, reject much of your scriptures, take on much of their own religious things. They're in parallel to you, but different. There they are, right next door. But for many, many years, separated by a vast chasm. Spiritually speaking, starting at the same place, using much of the same language, even some of the same forms of worship, 
but greatly different in substance. And that spiritual difference has led to a lot of cultural differences as well. And a lot of anger and prejudice and suspicion and separation. By the time of Jesus, you'll recall that if you were a Jew that lived in the north or in the south of Israel and you wanted to go, you would walk all the way around so that you didn't have to be anywhere near the Samaritans. And if you did, for some reason, have to be next to a Samaritan, there was still a large wall built between the two of you such that you wouldn't even share any utensils with him, nor he with you. You look at him, he's unclean. He's messed up culturally and spiritually. So, are there any Samaritans today? People of common roots, common religious background, living right next door, but different, separated from us, a high wall of division between us. I would suggest that we live in Samaria, right here. And I would also suggest that a good number of us are pretty upset with that. Not remotely happy about it. We wouldn't say it out loud, but in our hearts, our attitude is much more like James and John in Luke chapter 9. Remember Luke 9, Jesus, it says there, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, he'd set his face towards Jerusalem, he's headed towards the cross, they stop in a Samaritan village, but the Samaritans reject him because of where he's going, physically and metaphorically. They reject Jerusalem, they reject the cross, they don't want any part of that, and so they reject Jesus, and James and John say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these people? Can we? Please. As we live and preach in this valley and constantly experience the Christ of the cross rejected, worse still as we experience persecution against us, discrimination, worse still as we lose some of our relatives or friends or children to Samaritan deception, There's a big threat there, and it's very easy, very natural, very common, very normal for us to pray, Lord, send fire to consume these people, to wipe this problem out. It's very natural and very sinful. What is Jesus' response to those folks in Luke 9? To his disciples in Luke 9? James and John, one of the guys right here, laying his hands on them now. What's his response to them? Or think of John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. What's his response? He rebukes his disciples for wanting that. In John 4, he offers them living water to the woman and then to the whole village that comes out to him. Oh, there's lots of disputes we could get into, ma'am. But if you knew who you were talking to, You'd ask him for living water and he would give it to you. God's heart is big even for Samaritans. He does not submit himself to barriers that have sprung up because of false religion, cultural divides, misunderstanding, suspicion, prejudice. 
danger attack. He's determined to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including Samaria. That's what he's about. Look what he does here in Acts 8. He goes through great lengths to ensure that the gospel of Christ goes to Samaria. How does Philip end up in Samaria? He does not decide to get up and go over there all on his own. God chases him out of Jerusalem via persecution. Just like he does everybody else. He chases everybody out of, out of Jerusalem, it says. The reason he ends up there is that he's been scattered and he goes there to preach. What wisdom of God. The very same event that the Sanhedrin and Saul and Satan meant to be the extermination of the church. They meant it for that. God means to be the extension of the church. They mean one thing, God means something else. Same event. Now, Right at this point, there's a huge tangent that we could go a long way off onto, which would be very profitable, but I'm only going to go a little bit down that road. But there's something right here that we need to get our minds around just a little bit about how God sovereignly reigns over evil. The Sanhedrin, Saul, and Satan mean anything good to come out of this persecution? No. Nothing. They're killing people, putting people in prison. Evil. Does God mean anything good to come out of that? Absolutely. And it is not that God just looks down and says, wow, look at that. Somebody broke a whole bunch of eggs. I guess I'll make an omelet with them. He means, he means good to come out of this. Think of how he interacts with Satan and Job. Or more pointedly, think of Joseph and his brothers. You could jot down Genesis 50 verse 20. Talked a little bit last week about how his brothers sold him, sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. There at the end of Genesis, the brothers are afraid Joseph's not going to get him because their father's dead. And he says, No, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Same word, meant. Not God turned it for good after it happened. God meant it for good for the saving of many lives. An evil event done by human beings is still in the sovereign plan of God to accomplish something marvelous and good. He means things. He has purpose in everything that happens. The sovereignty of God is vast and wide. And here, his purpose is, in the persecution, I'm going to carry the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He has an intention there. It's how he gets the gospel to Samaria. It's important to him. Why? Because he wants to save Samaritans. They must hear. He wants to save them. He wants to bring them into the family to include them, and they have to hear the gospel. So he sends it to them. His intention to save Samaritans is confirmed by the whole event of the laying on of hands and the giving of the Spirit when the apostles come down. What's he saying there? What, I described this a little bit, but he's saying essentially Peter... Come over here. Remember what you preached at Pentecost? You preached to the crowd that was looking at the giving of the Spirit. They're looking at this, and you said to them, Guys, look at this. This is the work of God. Only God could do this. 
God has poured out his spirit here. It's the work of God. Accept it. Believe it. Okay. Now come over here. Put your hand on these Samaritans. I know you think they're unclean. Put your hand on them anyway. Touch them. Pray. And then be quiet and watch. I'm going to do the same thing here that you previously said was the work of God. So draw the conclusion here, Peter. The message is, I'm going to save Samaritans too. Even Samaritans. This must have blown his mind. It must have blown the church's mind. But they got the message. On the way back to Jerusalem, they didn't go around. They went through, stopping in Samaritan villages, preaching the gospel. They got the message. Do we? Have you got the message? We live in Samaria, and God intends, God's heart is huge to save the Samaritans all around us. The parallel people, the parallel religion, he means to save some from among them. This is a, this is a critical element in becoming a person or becoming a church that is fervent and is committed to witness and to service and to prayer for people. To actually think that God wants to save them. We can walk through all the steps of praying and talking to them, but if we don't actually think this is going to work because God doesn't actually want it to work, that's going to cut out some of the fervency and some of the commitment to it. But when you see people as lost and you see God's intention to save from among them, and you're, you're convinced of that, there's going to be a little urgency in your giving of yourself, in your praying for them, because you know I'm, I'm in the stream of what God wants to do here. I'm not running down a dry riverbed. He's going to pour out water. He's going to pour out the Spirit here. God, do it. Father, send the Spirit. Use me. You've got to see this. It's important because it will affect you and it will affect us if we are convinced that God means to save people here. And we must be convinced and we must be changed by this because of the second observation. It's going to involve us. God doesn't save people apart from other people. He saves people by the Spirit at work through His people. Here's the second observation. We must strive to help Samaritans receive the Word of God. We must strive, pick that word because I want to communicate work, expend effort. We must strive to help Samaritans receive the word of God. Do all that we can to help people come to embrace the word. Talk about the word in this context, we're talking about the message from God. God has a message that he's trying to communicate to people. All different cultures, all different languages is a message that he's communicating. And if you want to sum it up in one word, that message is Christ. The only hope for Samaritans or for anybody is to be intimately, genuinely, wholeheartedly connected to Christ. He is the only message from God. He's the center and the sum of what God is speaking. Christ Hope, only hope, this Jesus, not the Jesus of your imagination, this Jesus, the one word message, 
Christ. I could expand on that, though, just a little bit. They'll look at verse 12. In verse 5, you can sum it up as Christ. That's what it says Peter pre- I mean, uh, um, Philip preached. He went and preached Christ. You can sum it up like that, but you could expand a little bit to verse 12 and say what he actually preached was the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The good news about the kingdom. The good news about the reign of God. The kingdom of God is his reign. The reign of God has broken into the world. It's planted, it's growing. It's not here fully yet, but it's planted and it's growing in the human heart. Now when some people hear the, the reign of God, the control of God over the human heart, they instantly have kind of a negative reaction because it sounds kind of oppressive. I mean, God's going to grab a hold of me and, and you know, hold me down. It's going to control me. The reign of God is a good and beautiful thing. But before you get there, you really have to ask yourself, what's the real question here when I talk about reign of God? Is it reign of God versus reign of nothing, or is it the reign of God versus the reign of something else? That's what it really is. Something is in charge of every one of us, always. Pick your master. You have one. Everybody does, always. You're born, you have a master. Something is driving you, calling the shots in your life, and directing you. Something is what you live for, to please, to reach out to, to to meet the standard of, however you want to put that. Everybody has something or someone reigning over them. The question is, is whatever's reigning over you as good and gracious and wise and powerful and competent and praiseworthy as God? And the answer is no. Something is in charge of you. How fortunate you would be if it was God. How blessed you would be if the reign of God would move onto you, reach into you, grab you, and liberate you, and then your family, and then our community and our nation, liberate us from the reign of sin and Satan, who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Dressed up in a nice costume, that's his motive, to kill you and destroy you and to destroy all of us. And he reigns over you until God does. Only God is good. How fortunate you would be if his reign would move into your heart and begin to control you. Thanks be to God. Here's the good news. The reign, the kingdom of God has come in Christ. One way it comes in Christ. This Jesus. He's come. He's come to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to bring life to you. If you will give your heart to him and trust him, he'll move into you and take charge of you. Become Lord over you. His reign will move in, and it's a blessed and glorious thing. The response then for you and for everybody, Samaritans and everybody, is to submit to him. To bow the knee to him now, to embrace him, to hope in him, to trust him, to receive his reign. It's good news. And our job 
is to help Samaritans to strive in doing anything that we can to help people in general and Samaritans, in this passage in particular, to receive this word from God, this message from God about the reign of God come in Christ. As I think about how we might strive to do that, three things came to my mind. They're more or less clear in this passage. I think two of them are more clear than the other. The third one's more implied. Three things. First, briefly, I think we can strive to proclaim the word to people. To share the gospel with them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. They can't receive it if they haven't heard it. In this passage, the people are all scattered out of Jerusalem and they go preaching. Everybody. And we see one person in particular, a guy who we've actually previously met as one of the deacons of Acts chapter 6. But just like Stephen, he doesn't assume that I'm just a servant. I minister at the table. I don't share the gospel. No, he doesn't assume that. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to share the gospel. I have some ability to share it with large numbers of people. That's what I'm going to go do. Now, we're all going to have different abilities and different gifts and different inclinations, but all of us should be thinking, I can be a verbal spokesman for this gospel. I'm trained, or if you're not, get trained. I have relationships, or if you're not, get some. I'm trustworthy, or if you're not, become trustworthy. Come to the seminar and figure out some of these ways to to facilitate this in your life. But all of us, should be thinking about how can I proclaim the gospel to people around me. That's the first way we can strive to help Samaritans come to receive the word. Second way, the interaction between Simon and the Apostle Peter makes something clear, I think. We are to strive to help Samaritans receive the word of God. It doesn't do them or anybody any good, actually does everybody much harm, if we only strive to help Samaritans think they've received the word of God. Or strive to help other people think they've received the word of God. Simon thought, and there's no reason to believe from the text that he was disingenuous, that he was being deliberately deceptive or just pretending. He thought that he'd become a Christian. He got baptized. Thought that he was one. And many today in the church in our church, in the church at large, and many around us think they're Christians. Whether it be because of something that happened in the past, some walking the aisle, some praying the prayer, or just because of what the religious upbringing has taught them, many people think they're Christians. It does no good to them to just confirm that they are. It's unloving to do so. It's loving to make clear that they aren't. Or to help them make that clear. If we, we can't judge them ourselves. We can make clear what the requirements are, what the standards are. Lay them before people and say, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Like Paul says. Now there's a lot of doctrinal issues to be discussed. A lot of things in that. But looking at just what we have here in this story. We have Simon. He does one thing in particular, trying to buy power. But what's beneath that? What's beneath his attempt to purchase spiritual power? Beneath that is the same thing that's true in the hearts of all non-Christians. He lacks something. 
All non-Christians lack something. There has not been a fundamental reordering of Simon's internal allegiances. Externally, yes. Baptized, I might start going to church, might start saying some right things. But inside, there has not been a reordering of what his heart's fixed on. His heart is still wrong before God, says Peter. His heart is still committed to himself. What he says, I'm about power. I'm about being a powerful person. Jesus seems to be about giving power to people. I'll follow him. Wow, these guys seem to give power at the laying out of their hands. That's what I want. How much? His whole thinking, his whole perspective is still, what do I have to do to make me great? What do I have to do to advance myself, to lift myself up, to enhance myself, my status, my position? Circumstances are a little different for everybody else. Same basic problem. I'm looking at me, thinking about me and what advances me, and Jesus might get added in if I become convinced he can help me. Jesus becomes a genie in a bottle. You rub the bottle, so the genie pops out and gives you three wishes. You don't care about the genie, you want the wishes. Because of what the wishes can give you. And after the genie stops delivering, you throw the bottle away. That's idolatry, that's not Christianity. That's loving what the genie gives you. It never was about the genie. That's where Simon is. That's where many people in the church are. That's where many people in the culture around us are. I'm still looking at me and what I have to do or what I can do or what I should do to advance, to grow, to become good enough, acceptable, successful, with a family that, that I like, a job that I like, a career that I like. Will Jesus help that? Great. Come on in, Jesus. What I'm really about, though, is this. Can you help? There's been no fundamental reordering of what I'm really about is you. I want to lose my life to you. The great irony is that when you do that, then you find it. But if you seek your life, you lose it. These guys, Philip, John, Peter, they did have spiritual power. But they didn't get it by seeking spiritual power. We can have and find much benefit from Jesus. But you don't get Jesus by seeking the benefit. We need to make that clear in our evangelism. What we're talking about is bowing the knee to Jesus. About swinging over all of your allegiance. A way it's described sometimes is rolling over of yourself unto Christ. A bowing of the knee to him. Come whatever may. We need to make that clear in evangelism. We need to make that clear in the church. It's the second way that we can strive to help Samaritans actually receive the word of God, not just think they've received the word of God. The third way, though, it's not expressly stated in the passage, but I think it's important to consider. There's something in Philip's ministry that we cannot directly copy today. Regardless of whatever you think about miraculous gifts like healing of, of people who are tremendously paralyzed and lame and whatnot, 
regardless of what you think about that, I think everybody agrees that not all of us can on demand do that extensive of a healing ministry. We can't directly copy that today. But there's something in what happens there. God gives a sign that draws people's attention, and then they, by the grace of God, pay attention not just to the sign, but to what the sign's pointing to. You know the old thing about you, you point to something for a dog, and the dog looks at your finger? What we want is for us to point and for them to look at what we're pointing to. The sign is pointing to Christ, to the message about Christ. By the grace of God, these folks were drawn by the signs and looked at the message of the gospel. Is there some way, apart from being able to reproduce vast, miraculous signs, is there some way that we can draw attention, if you will, to the word, to the message? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I put the word on it of adorning. I think the third way that we strive to help Samaritans receive the word of God is to adorn the word of God. It comes out of Titus, where we are exhorted to adorn the doctrine of God. When you adorn something, you dress it up. You show off its beauty. Make it look attractive. We can adorn the doctrine of God. That we should be about. We need to consider this, I think, especially in our setting here. What does it look like when we preach the gospel, but our lives are not characterized by as much apparent external holiness as the community around us? Follow what I'm saying there? I'm not talking about actual holiness. I'm talking about apparent external holiness. The community around us has a high standard of apparent external holiness. What does it look like when we don't even meet that standard, but we preach the gospel? Or, what does it look like when we preach the word and our lives are not characterized by any sense of deep, abiding, circumstance-free joy? When hard things come in our lives, we're not sorrowful but ever rejoicing. We're just sorrowful, just like everybody else. We're miserable. We're, we're down. We're depressed. We don't live with hearts fastened to Christ in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're total strangers to that. We live miserable and depressed lives, but we preach the word about how you can come and find joy in Christ. What's that like? Or we preach the word, but we have no driving commitment to meet with God. So when you talk about the word, it's like reminiscing about something that you used to know a long time ago. But it's not fresh on you. People can sense that. People can sense when you're talking about last year's meeting with God. The gospel that you first embraced 20 years ago and haven't thought about since. Or worse yet, when we preach the word and carry with us a distinct flavor of, I don't like you. I don't. I really, I don't long to see you, your children, your family, your community, this city, blessed and prospered. I don't love you. 
frankly, I'm praying my company transfers me so that I can leave. I want away from you. I want out. I've got a barrier that I build up between us. If I have to get over here, I'll interact with you, but I'm not going to share any utensils with you. Oh, by the way, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son who ever believes in him and not perish. There, do with that what you want. I'm out of here. That would be an unadorned gospel. And I cannot imagine how that would be successful. Can you? I mean, somehow, by the grace of God, it could be. But we're working counter to God there, I'm convinced. We must strive to help Samaritans to receive the word of God by proclaiming it to them, by helping clarify what it actually means to receive the word of God, to trust and become Christians, and by adorning it by living lives that are in touch with the reality of the gospel, display it and love people. Serve them. Lay down our lives for them. I read something this week that said, if your church were to be lifted out of your community, would people say about you, I didn't believe much of what they believed, but I dread the fact that they're going to be leaving us, that they're gone. They wanted to say, we're going to have to raise taxes to be able to pay for all the stuff those people did for us for free. The community say that about us? No. It's a little different in our setting, I'm sure, than where that person was writing from. The point is, though, do people know us as being for them? Aids, assistance, caring about the prosperity of the city. I don't mean just financial. I mean the blessing of the city, the blessing of the people in the city. Do they know us to be a people like that or do they know us more as isolationist, which says in action louder than in words, I don't like you, I don't want to be with you. It's hard, I heard, for people to believe that your God wants them in heaven if you don't want them in your living room. We must strive to adorn the gospel. Make clear what it is. Proclaim it. We must proclaim the word in Samaria because God is determined to save even Samaritans. Lord, would you do the work in us that we individually particularly need? I don't know what that is for each person here. Lord, some I pray you would call to faith. Most here, though, I pray you would call to commitment to your mission, an attitude and a heart perspective like you have. Lord, do that in us, I pray. And as we turn to communion, would you grow in us thankfulness and appreciation for the gospel as pictured here. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.